0: Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards, and we have gone on holiday, Mark, but not by mistake.
1: No, no, this is a conscious decision and a wise one. It is a magic day. In fact, this is one of those days that one always dreams of. The weather's perfect, the
0: setting's perfect and the company's grand. Driving here today, Mark, to this as-yet unspecified location, came over the tops and was greeted by Fields of Gold, in uh, Sting's words. Where are we today? Well, we're in Swaledale. Now, many of our faithful listeners who
1: believe that we are dedicated and utterly committed to Cumbria, well, we are. And of course, the Yorkshire Dales actually transgressed into Cumbria nowadays, into the Westminster Dales, but we've actually taken a, a leap genuinely over the border. And here today, we're celebrating our connection with Yorkshire.
0: And for people who don't know exactly where we are geographically, can you just pin us down? Well, if you know
1: Yorkshire, one of the famous valleys, Swaledale, its principal town is Richmond. Up through Richmond, up the valley, you come through Reith, and right at the sort of the upper end of the valley we're at Muca, a civil parish of Muca with various uh, hamlets connected, Angram, Thwaite, Keld, so we're in that upper
0: realm of Swaledale. This is a very special valley, um, I remember my first arrival here, I was walking the Pennine Way, it was Hawes to Keld, absolutely tipping it down uh, and I actually got to Thwait, and I thought I was in Keld and then I suddenly realized you have that last little dog leg and I was knackered so it wasn't the best of introductions but I have since fallen in love with this valley this is walking territory isn't it and a lot of our listeners will probably know this either from the Pennine Way or probably even more than that of course the coast to coast walk it's what I always think of as the spaghetti junction of long-distance walking paths in this country. Uh, we will talk about long-distance walking, we will talk about these meadows, we will talk about farming, and we will talk about the mines, the historic heritage industries of this wonderful valley. Uh, and who's our guest today, Mark? Well, we're fortunate to get somebody who lives in Reefs
1: but who's connected very much with this whole setting and involved with the heritage resource of this area and understanding it and communicating, it's Helen Guy. It'll be a very special day.
0: Wonderful, this is a real holiday for us. I know this valley is special to both you and I. I'm really looking forward to today. Let's go and meet Helen.
1: That was a delight coming out of the village. I love Mooka, lovely entity. It envelops you when you come into it, as you drive into it, and as you walk out of it, as we have done, out onto the meadows is a golden scene. There's a track that leads us through, and we're heading, I suppose, north at the moment. Now, Helen, what is your connection with this valley?
2: So, my name's Helen. I'm Swaledale born and bred. Um, my mother's family come from the top of the dale, Keld, and my father's family farmed up at Hilltop Lodge, just above Muca here. And I'm also involved in the Keld Resource Centre. love Swaledale. We do lots of guided walks and talks um, on Swaledale and the local heritage. And I've been invited along here today to join you. Magic. Can
1: you describe the view that you know so well, Helen? So we've just walked out of Muca and we're now looking
2: across the beautiful hay meadows that are awash with buttercups at the foot of Kisden Gorge. And we're also looking up the gorge at the Beldy Hill Lead Mining Complex, which um, was a hive of activity some 300 years ago. So we're going to be walking up there
1: today. Ghosts of the past, my goodness me. Well, it's, it's a landscape full of vibrant pastures and woodlands rising up the hillsides with scree and crags on the top. And the sky is blue and dappled with clouds. There's a gentle breeze just caressing us. It's magic. It's been a strange season because it's a late season, but we are here at a critical time because within a week or so, the mowing machine will be out and we'll lose all this luxurious colour
2: The meadows here, and indeed now all down Swaledale, have been absolutely magnificent this year. They do attract people from all over the country to come and see them because they know they've got a very limited time. And in early July, as you have said, the farmers do, alas, need to come in and cut them down because this is the winter fodder for for their farm animals to see them through what can be an absolute brutal winter in the Pennines. The hay that
1: will come from this. Sweet beautiful if they get it perfect it is idyllic
2: you could always eat it yourself
1: (laughs) (laughs) now we need to get on today because the afternoon is beckoning where are we going helen we're going across the hay meadows to ramps home bridge crossing
2: over onto the east side of kisden gorge then we're walking up by the river to the foot of beldy hill to the ruins of the smelt mill
1: Right, well that sounds like a lovely little trail. I can't wait. Oh, the sun's coming out on the far hillside, so that's welcoming us towards Rance Home Bridge. Lovely little gate there coming through and the paved way leading on, which is absolute magic, Helen. And now we've moved from golden pasture into wow it's purple and and a great diversity Uh, it's a landscape full of history how long is the history of human connection with this landscape would you say oh it goes back
2: over many many centuries way back to the lead mining which was back in the 1500s 1600s and then of course sheep farming has always been very important the um, Cistercian monks were very prevalent more so perhaps in Wensleydale than Swaledale they were granted great swathes of um, land in the dales and through that knitting became a very popular pastime and necessity for many families to survive up here because the farming was so difficult to produce any sort of meaningful way of making a living particularly in Swaledale especially the land is a lot poorer than in Wensleydale no arable farming could be carried out up here so it has always been sheep farming and dairy farming to a degree but sadly now that is no longer prevalent in the Dales and
1: I don't think now there are hardly any dairy herds left in Swaledale. You talk about going back in time I can actually think about going back to the Brigantes the, the mm. domain here when the Romans mm. came and they exploited the lead. They
2: did the Romans came into um, this Dale and put the Brigantes to work in Hurst lead mines, which was a penal colony, which was the practice of Romans at the time. And so the local tribes of the dale were put to work up at Hurst in the lead mines there. The Romans would have been at Catterick, I presume. And over at Bainbridge as well.
1: We can see the monastic landscape is very prevalent in Wensleydale. Here you've probably got a little bit of a different storyline about the way farmers operated here
2: yes swaledale was very much more cut off from the lower dales um And certainly after the dissolution of the monasteries, when Henry VIII did take away a lot of the lands and the wealth from the various religious institutions, then these lands went over into private ownership. Swaledale, for many, many centuries, was owned by the Wharton estate, which were based over in um, Cumbria, Nateby, Kirby Stephen.
1: So you have this relationship between Swaledale and Wensleydale.
2: Uh, Can you describe it? Wensleydale... The farming there, it's a little bit more amenable to growing crops as opposed to just traditional hill sheep farming, given the change in climate and also the geology and layout of the actual dale as well. It's a lot wider, there are a lot more low-lying meadows where, as we can see here, you know, it's a very, very steep valley, um, Swaledale.
1: Well, you might have heard that there's people walking by all the time. I don't know if you've heard the clattering of that lovely wicket gate in this squeeze style. The sun is really warm now and the flowers are looking really gorgeous. Uh, We'll plod a little further along this wonderful paved way towards Rant's Home Bridge, which is to do with Ransom's uh, Wild Garlic.
2: Absolutely. So Wild Garlic in Swaledale is known as ramps. (laughs) (laughs)
1: We'll ramp along there now. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely enchanting. We're continuing to go through another gate now. Wonderful sweep of the hillsides there. Woodlands on either flank. Skyline up, up to my left the skyline of Kisden. Up to the right is scar and scree. Of course, a, a scar in Yorkshire is not a, a blemish, it's a, a crag, it's an outcrop. So that lines the horizon and there's may blossom still here. But in the foreground and the valley floor is this wonderful diversity of wildflowers. And it's no accident that there is this diversity.
2: These meadows around Muca are designated sites of um, scientific importance and so they are protected. Uh, The farmers here don't start mowing them until all the wildflowers have seeded and that date is set by DEFRA each year so they're very very important meadows and what we're looking at now we've got the buttercups we've got the yellow rattle we've got dandelions clover both purple and white we've got the cranes bill and if we're really really lucky there are orchids in these meadows as well amazing which wildflower uh, fanatics flock to these meadows in the hope of um, finding the swaledale orchids so the mowing pattern here is pretty distinct sheep are grazed in these fields until early spring then they are taken and put up onto the fells and the moors to graze and these meadows are left to grow
1: they're shut off as they call they it, are I shut think. off
2: yes absolutely so the flowers seed and then when defra give the approval date the farmers can come in and cut cut the grass
1: these days because of the economy uh, our farming economy and efficiency it's either hay or it's silage i would guess so hay it obviously will bake in the sun and mm. dry over three days and then be baled into small cubes and if it's silage it'll wilt for a day and then it'll be wrapped in big bales these big round cotton reels that you see nowadays now, they store the big round ones in the modern barns, but historically, the little bales, where did they go? They went into these cowhouses that we see in the fields
2: here. So the cows would be overwintered on the on the lower floor, and in the top floor, in the box. that's where the hay would be put. So the farmer could just go into the barn and fork it down to the cattle.
1: So they were stored in the cowhouse, or kuhus, and we'll going to look at those in a few minutes and as a little bit of a treat i gather you've been gathering stories connected with this practice and you've discovered some particularly special stories to go with it
2: yes yeah, so a few years ago um, the keld resource center worked with the yorkshire dales national park authority on the every barn tells a story and Glenda, who worked um, for the Cull Resource Centre, interviewed a lot of local people who were involved in traditional farming and we've got Dorothy Brown, Nee Clarkson, describing how she, as a little girl, had to get into the hayloft and tread down the hay as it was being forked in. So this is before even baling because every little bit of space mattered. So the children on the farms would get into the hayloft and basically walk round and round and round, trampling down the hay to try and pack as much hay in as possible.
3: In haymaking making time um, it didn't matter what you were doing or how ill you felt and at that point one day I was feeling really grotty and my father said right we have to get this hay in it's going to rain and we went into the cow house with the, there'd be one of my uncles and uh, my sister and I. And we had to tramp the hair down right to the rafters and it was hot, it was dusty, you didn't wear trousers, mm-hmm. you had cotton yes. skirts, mm-hmm. so the legs. Prickled your legs, mm. it was horrible. I would say it was one of my awful experiences of my life, really. Uncomfortable. Mm. not mm. And, and just hard because you couldn't breathe either. Mm. And you, you had to get as much, you had to cram as much hay in as you could to the rafters. So then, when you'd got right to the last little bit and you'd got it, then you could crawl out of the forking hole. Window, yes, and the telpy mm. down to the It yeah. wasn't when you were feeling grotty like that, it wasn't nice. And I would be even, about
4: 11, I think, yes, yes. Be about 11 mm. years old because stacking small bales is an it, it, it. well, this was loose hay, yes, this was loose hay because obviously yeah. you're doing it on a warm day because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. No, no you didn't just have an open. option.
3: Your father said you had to do it, and mm. my mum used to plead. Mm. With me, course. I wasn't very well. Could, mm. Can't Dorothy go home? No, nope.
1: we'll have to get this in. Then. Yeah. Mm. Well, we come within sight of the great mm. boulder-strewn river Swale. It's a, quite a striking feature here. We come to a gate, another wicked gate, just beside the river itself. But it's a chance just to look back because I can see a Coohoose with its hayloft, a very substantial building. If it was a house, there would be enough room there for two big families. Could you describe it to us, Helen? So it's got two floors. On the lower floor,
2: the cows would be um, tied up in stalls from around October right through to May. Mm. And... On the top floor, that's where all the hay would be stored. And obviously, traditionally, that would be loose and packed packed down, as Dorothy was telling us. And the farmer would, twice a day, have to walk around all his cowesses, either let the cows out to drink or take water in, and then from upstairs, fork down the hay onto the hay racks for the cows to um, feed. And
1: he would have another pattern of putting the dung out into a heap in the
2: yard. That's very, very valuable to the hill farmers and the Swaledale farmers. So the dung would be cleared out, stored in a heap, until then it was
1: taken and spread onto the meadows. And I can envisage, before the age of the tractor, is a horse and cart one horse, mm. one cart, mm. forked into that cart, taken out into the meadow, maybe put into a pile, Yes, various piles all over the field, and then on another occasion they go out and spread it onto the field with a fork. These are dairy short-owned cattle, uh, and the product of it was uh, cheese and butter and milk, used in the community, but also sold locally. Where would they sell?
2: Well, to give a personal example, uh, my my great-grandparents farmed up at Hilltop Lodge and in the walled garden there, there are two huge cheese presses where my grandmother and my great-grandmother made cheese. And in one of the Maria Hartley books, uh, they write about my great-grandfather would get up at 3.30 a.m., This is every fortnight. Load up a horse and cart with cheeses and go all the way over to Barnard Castle over the Stang to stand up Barnard Castle Market because the coal miners would come down to buy the cheeses. And if it was really bad, he would go up further to Middleton and Teesdale to the market there. Didn't need good eyesight for that. (laughs) Perhaps another pertinent example is why the Buttertubs are called the Buttertubs. Buttertubs, yes, that's the hill road that links uh, Thwaite over to uh, Hardra. It is indeed, and as you are going over from Swaledale into Wensleydale by the side of the road, there are these unique... Um, chasms that go down up to 100 feet um, formed by um, limestone erosion and they were called the butter tubs and the farmers used to take their butter and cheeses over to the market in Hawes but because it was quite a long journey on hot days they apparently would stop and lower their produce down into these holes because it was so cool so keeping the butter cool. That's quite
1: a steep hill going over butter tubs to Wensleydale but of course... People didn't worry about that. They committed a day to it. They did. It was
2: a so- social day out as well as a day for generating much-needed additional income for the family. And if we look around, Swaledale is hill country. People are absolutely used to climbing up and down hills all day. So a trek over the butter tubs was
1: no, no great piece. So. <laughs> when you've got legs like that, you've got to keep using them. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Now, I gather you've got another clip that uh, relates to uh, the time when these valleys, particularly when they were dark, they mm. had an oppressive feel to them uh, for the natives. The people living here were always a bit cautious about who might be moving around into this setting. Can you give a bit of a bit feel to that one, Helen? I
2: can, yes, because quite often it was the children or... The young men of the family that had the um, evening task of going round and settle and feeding the cattle at night. And it looks idyllic now, but obviously, up here at night, it can be quite scary, and particularly um, in days of old, um, tramps were quite prevalent within the jail and an encounter with um, you know, somebody in a barn or a cowist that shouldn't have been there could be quite frightening, as William Calvert, um, who farmed at Greenses,
5: told us. I always tried to get those jobs done, cows and so forth, before dark. Mm-hmm. One uh, day didn't work out that way, it was getting dusk, and I was nervous. And I went down and the first building I came into, I uh, let cows out, did what was necessary, went to get hair, and I felt some leather of some sort where hair was uh, and I panicked. I thought it, it felt like a case and I whipped out, got cows in and went like blazes. Everything was done very, very quickly that night. And when I came back the following morning, I said to Percy, "Me bit a story." And he started to laugh. He said, "Well, I, I left the horse gear there. I'd been doing something with horse that day, and left the horse gear there, just where the hair was." And of course, I felt it and panicked. Yeah, you and thought
4: it was a suitcase, did you thought think? It, I thought it, it
5: was a suitcase. I didn't know what the heck it was. What was <laughs> that? I mean, I, I was only just in my very early twenties, and. Yeah. Uh, Nerves in dark
4: anyway. Yeah. It's creepy down there at night as well. Uh, down at Heart uh, yes. Lakes, it is a dark, uh, in the bottom. It is. So. And the cliff's up the side, it is yeah. right, quite enclosed.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and mm. it, it, it's right in but... Uh, so they got a quick do that night, the cows. Very quick do. <laughs> I don't know whether one, one or two with missed to be honest. <laughs> that, that, that's a little, little bit of a story that's right yes and uh, because it was a dreary route from keld to crackpot you had to uh, come so far then cross the bridge of swale then go to the other side and it it was a bit it was a bit creepy
4: yeah and there'd be many a time you would do that in the in the bad light because of the short days
5: we always tried to be get those done
4: coast heart lakes B- before dark, yeah. How many would you have tied up down there then at Heart Lakes? Oh, not a lot, maybe fifteen, something like that. Fifteen—that's quite a lot, ah. They must have had quite a few cows at Crappot,
5: aye. Uh, in in those days, at my father's uh, farm, where I was born, there was seventeen acres of meadowland in total mm-hmm. and pasture and Right. And yet he, he managed to bring uh, himself and, you know, his wife a living and uh, three children. Yes, yes. And yet he manage, And I know at that time milk wagon used to come from Leban gathering milk and my father uh, thought there had a bit of surplus. Many a time they just maybe sold five gallon at, at the start to get, get going. Yes. And... Uh, and so that was added income. Yes. Not anyone, anyone And I just uh, have to tell you, well, i have to and get a bit of profit in. <laughs> that was basically night. And I normally milked about four cows by hand.
4: Yes, yes.
1: That was a fascinating clip, that. And Helen, you, you had something to say about the superstitions that permeated this valley. There was a lot of superstition people wouldn't perhaps walk
2: over the moor at night because of strange flames and ghostly um, images that could arise, which was actually just the gas coming off the moor. Quite often, families would find hagstones or witch stones, as they were called, and these were stones that had had a hole naturally formed through them by the water, and they would hang them outside their houses. Farmers would put them in the cowases to protect their cattle, and even the lead miners would take them into the mines.
1: Well, now we'll um, take a chance to cross the River Swale, which is very unswale-like. It's more like a beck, isn't it, at the mm-hmm. moment? It is. Wonderful section of the river we've got here, very open uh, and very broad, because uh, it's low, you can see there's lots of boulders in it. It sort of begs the question, why so many boulders in actual fact?
2: So what we're seeing here, particularly while the river is so low, uh, is the high amount of stones that are in the riverbed. And this is a legacy from many centuries ago when they were hushing the hillsides for ledge, And that involved... Where they thought there was a strong outcrop of lead, they would dam the water above it, collect enough water in a reservoir or a tarn, then release it. For the old field hush up there, they had two separate reservoirs, but they were at different distances apart. So the timing when they released the water through the sluice gates that they used to hold the water back until the reservoirs were full was absolutely crucial. And so they would have men on the moor giving signals as to when to release each gate. The water would then flow down, meet at the head of the hush and cascade down the hillside, just ripping out any topsoil, rocks, etc. to hopefully reveal the lead ore. And up there, there was an awful lot of lead and it was hushed repeatedly over and over again for many centuries. Was there different layers of it? Do you so think? basically, lead ore is deposited in vertical veins, I whereas coal is horizontal. I And that's why Swaledale is so good for lead mining, because once they've exhausted being able to access the lead on the surface, they then started to drive the levels to tap into the deeper lead deposits.
1: Fascinating. Um, from where we are now, we can look up to Kisden, where the Pennine Way traverses. I think you said there was some older way up there as well. A very, very long time ago,
2: the only consecrated um, ground for anybody who died in the Dale was at Grinton. And obviously, if somebody died, the coffin had to be transported down there. So there is a road, a very old road, called the Corpse Way, that starts in Keld. It comes up over Kisden, drops down here and carries on down the valley to Ivlet Bridge, where there is still a stone, a resting stone, in the shape of a coffin, where the men would lay down the coffin and rest. They would then go on to Low Row and they would stay overnight at the Punch Bowl Inn and on the hillside above it, there was what was called a dead house where they would put the coffins while they went down into the inn and partook of some beverages. And I have read that on more than one occasion, if there was two or more bodies in transit, they sometimes picked up the wrong body and carried on to Grinton. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Muker Church was um,
1: built and consecrated so people could be buried in the upper end of the dale. So we get a broadening of the valley here, and we're looking more or less northwest. and you get the Heart Lakes, the ruin ahead of us, which is a quarter of a mile away from us now. On the horizon, just below the horizon, there's Crackpot Hall, which of course means the place of the Crow's Hollows. But uh, Heart Lakes is significant, isn't it, Helen?
2: We're now standing on the other side of the river. This was actually the main road from Muca up to Keld, up this now sort of hidden, forgotten gorge, if you like. And it passed up through the ruined farmsteads of Heart Lakes. And these were very much small, minor, small holdings. But the main farmhouse just up ahead that's now derelict, my great-great-grandfather was born there... And the name Heart Lakes comes from where deers played. Heart is another name for deer, and lake um, is to play around. As it's in Cumbria, it's laking. Laking about, stop laking about. So this was the place where the deers laked about. And at one time, all of these hills were covered in forest because this was Lord Wharton's hunting ground. And Crackpot Hall was his hunting lodge. That's what it was built for. When the lead mining gathered pace and the smelt mills started to need fuel, all the hills were cleared of the wood and when they would burnt all the wood, they then had to start bringing peat down from, from the moors to fuel the um, smelt mills.
1: I notice the riverbank has got great boulders preventing this track from being washed away because of course this river is notorious for its floods. The Swale is supposedly the fastest flowing
2: river in um, the United Kingdom and certainly if you get a cloudburst at the top of the dale, the water that come down here is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And we've had some very, very serious floods within the last few years. But then if you go back, there was a huge flood in 1899. There was a triple cloudburst on um, Great Shunner Fell that took away all the bridges. Um, It destroyed Hoggers Farmhouse. Um, up near Keld, and indeed, some people's items in Thwaite ended up down here in Muca, such was the force of the water. So, the dale has always flooded. I can hear the chatter of the
1: cattle. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've come within sight of, and overlooking, the gorge, the side valley of Swinagil, which flows from the north, into the main Kisden Gorge. And here we can see the elements of a mine smelt mill. Of course, the lead was mined in Adits, as Helen has mentioned, and it was conveyed here on carts and had to be processed. And they came to this spot to take advantage of the water. What was the purpose of the water? So smelt mills were always built near to a water source because
2: the water was needed to drive the water wheel that powered the bellows to make sure that the ore has were the correct temperature. And who would be operating in a setting like this? You would have smelters and they would work in, in pairs and they would stand over and constantly mix the ore and the fuel to get it to the optimum temperature where the lead would then run into a
1: pit and down into the pig mould. And so the smelters, that, that's presumably men? Yes. Because it tended to be that the whole family in some way or other was roped into this process. The mines provided employment for
2: the whole family. So the men would go into the mines and work a six hour shift, women and children, possibly as young as ten, would come up and work outside the mine entrance in on the dressing floor because when the lead was extracted from the mine, it still had quite a significant amount of what was called deads or waste rock and that needed to be knocked off it before it could be smelted. And certainly before they introduced the industrial crushers, the women and children had to sit and do it all by hand oh, with hammers.
1: Ab- absolutely appalling.
2: And that was outside in the harsh elements for ten-hour shifts. Oh. The mines themselves, unfortunately, are in quite remote areas, so miners had to walk up to three miles from their homes in the many outlying hamlets and villages um, to get to their place of work. Then they had to get underground and through the labyrinth of tunnels could walk another two miles to get to the appropriate place where they were working. And, you know, miners would walk up and down. All these paths now that walkers enjoy were miners' paths up to the mines Small-scale farmers were also miners as well. Absolutely. So a typical day would be for a miner to come and work his six-hour shift, then go back to his small holding and tend, tend to the sheep and cows, although quite often his wife would do that. And he may then go walling oh. or, or haymaking for, for some more income, and they would knit. They would knit as they walked, and a popular phrase was, let's stop for six stitches, where they would just sit and have a little rest, because that was another valuable income for the family. Wool merchants would drop off the raw wool at the village fairs, and the family would knit on an evening, walk into the mine, and then they would sell the stockings back to the hosiers, who would then give them more raw wool for the next batch.
1: For levity or for contrast, I suppose being non-conformists, and that came with the lead mining industry, they went to chapel and they sang.
2: They did, and many would go to chapel up to three times a day. Wow. And I think that was as much for the social aspect of, as it was for worship. Yes. It was the one day when they could actually relax, socialise, catch up with family and friends.
1: So when we're looking at Swinnergill smelt, it had a particular name. Beldy Hill. Beldy Hill. And if we look at it, you can see the arch of the smelter, I presume, uh, and one or two coins of structures there. But rising up on the northwest side, there is a, looks like a bit of a wall, but actually it's probably something more than that. So that was the flue,
2: which was the chimney, and all the smelt mills, eventually, they started to realise that around the smelt mills, the sheep and cattle were dying and that was because, of course, of the sulphur dioxide that was given off from the smelting process. So they ran long flue chimneys right the way up onto the top of the moor where it could then be discharged without inflicting any any harm on either the men or the cattle. But another interesting aspect of it was, up to 30% of the lead that was smelted was still in the fume, as it was called, the soot, which deposited as it cooled onto the lining of the flue. So every so often, men or boys would climb in and scrape off all of this fume. They would then wash it down and re-smelt it to extract as much lead as they possibly could. And what was the effect on the people. Well, the smelters were standing right over it, so their life expectancy was very, very um, short. A miner, typically 45 to 50 years in Swaledale, um, a lot of them worked what was called piece rate, which meant they only had bargained to work a a section of the mine for a limited time. So time was of the essence. So when they were using dynamite at the ore face, as soon as it had discharged, they would go back and start working. So you've got the combination of silicon particles stale air, and a lot of them developed silicosis emphysema and also tuberculosis meningitis, which was highly contagious. They were then going back to very small, cramped, dark and damp hovels and cottages, coughing, and they infected their entire family. Some reports were staggering. There was a man up above Low Row. He lost his wife and ten of his children within two years.
1: As we were coming up the valley... Helen, you did alert my eyes to the line, I think, of the Pennine Way where there wasn't a couple of old mines that were identified and given a quirky name. Can you tell me a bit about that? The
2: mines on the other side of the gorge here are very ancient, and when they started to rework them, it was always the miner's greatest fear that he would stumble on old workings that had already been worked out. And if that happened, the, the, the term was, Towed Man had been there. The old man, i.e. previous generations of miners,
1: had already been there. That's really interesting. I'd come across Towed Man. I didn't know the story that went with it. And uh, the sun's gorgeous now, looking into Swinnergill. I believe that there's a higher smelt mill. Why were there two?
2: Essentially, this whole area was part of the Wharton estate, which Lord Pomfret inherited in the early 18th century. But he then sold it to a Thomas Metcalfe who bought the Manor of Muca for £10,500 no less and he sublet some of the ground to a mining company and they discovered a very, very rich deposit of lead which they paid the royalties to Thomas Smith for, because he was the landowner. But when Lord Pomfret sold his estate, he retained the mineral rights for the commons and wastes. And he contested this by trying to claim that this area was actually still part of the commons and wastes. It wasn't, but he would not take no for an answer. So he took it to the York courts three times, and then down to Westminster, on numerous times, and he eventually ended up in the Tower of London for debt because he just would not concede, with each ruling, that it, the lead was actually on land belonging to Thomas Smith. But the dispute divided the valley because half of the families worked for Pomfret's men and the other half worked for the Thomas Smith party. And there were some huge disputes up here. Men were dragged down hush gutters, dragged out of shafts by their legs. There was fights and it got really, really nasty and it rumbled on and on and on. That's when they built this smelt mill here because up until that point they were having to take all the lead from here right over onto Askrig Moor but Lord Pomfret's men actually seized that smelt mill. Then Lord Pomfret built his further up there and... um, it was never an easy relationship, I don't think. There was a lot of competition, flooding out each
1: other's workings and various other things. Dodgy, dodgy. It, it's a scene of great conflict, of wrangling and disruption. And the people who had to live and work through it, their allegiances were uh, who, whoever paid them. So they, they ended up brawling in a circumstance they didn't need to be brawling in. And all because of somebody's stubbornness. Absolutely. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating, if a bit depressing. I think we ought to wander a little bit further up the valley and probably think about the current leisure landscape that we all enjoy and uh, contributes to making Swaledale such a special place. Well, we've reached the ford and the footbridge on Swinogill, which, in effect is the end of our walk today because time is catching up on us but it gives us a chance just to reflect on the end of the mining phase and so like the consolidation of farming can you give us a little bit of a picture helen it was a combination of factors so particularly
2: in the upper dale the nemesis of the miner was always keeping the mines free of water because they flooded constantly and this proved very expensive having to um, try and bring in hydraulic equipment but even with pumps running they couldn't keep the mines drained once they'd got out all the accessible ore. Also at about the same time in the mid-19th century the Spanish mines began exporting lead very cheaply because they had a high content of silver and it was the silver really that they wanted so the lead became more of a byproduct, and so they started To export it a lot cheaper. It was due to these factors that families started to leave. The first sort of exodus from the Dale was the 1830s and that's when families would go up to the Durham coal fields or down to the Lancashire textile mills and some even made that great journey over the Atlantic to America and established mines there themselves. The last mining in Swaledale was really the Sir Francis level in Gunnarside Gill. By 1880, that was just proving too expensive to keep going. And sadly, in 20 years, the population of the dale went down by half. and a lot of the mining villages and hamlets on the hillside because some miners did live very close to the mines just fell into ruins and then when they started to do the enclosure work building the dry stone walls that's when a lot of the stone was taken so today a lot of walkers are walking past what were mining villages and they've got no idea that at one time on a remote hillside up to 50 families may well have lived in that
1: location
2: Staggering Mm. thought
1: isn't it This is a a landscape of people, and all we tend to see is ruins and tumbling stone walls. And of course, with all this change, come the early years of the 20th century, people were working in the mill towns, of course, and there was a a tremendous move amongst the body of people who lived in these industrial towns to escape, to have their free man on Sunday feeling of getting out into the dales, because... Lake District was too far away from them, but the Yorkshire Dales were there. A lot of
2: people really, really embraced the Dales, and it just became a new movement really and then with the introduction of the motor car suddenly the Dales were much more accessible to everybody and really from the early 1920s the tourism has just gently at first but then in recent years of course probably due to all creatures great and small (laughs) um, exploded yes (laughs) that's why we've got the Harriet Way here is that
1: right and uh, there was a great campaign for a a Pennine Way Mm. after the war well it started before the Second World War with Tom Stevenson so that by 1965 the Penham Way opened, the first long distance path in Britain and that ran through here and that had an impact but other routes uh, emerged haven't they? They have indeed, we've got the Coast to
2: Coast we've got the Harriet Way I quite often talk to quite a lot of people that call in the Keld Resort Centre and they often make mention of those two routes in particular being on
1: their bucket list. What tickles me about Keld is it's a uh, A crossways of two routes, but also almost halfway in both cases. So anybody that you encounter there will have a story to tell you about how they're feeling.
2: I think a lot of it depends on what sort of weather they have um, for these long, arduous walks. Um, We get some people that absolutely love it, it's been life-changing and, you know, they want to do it again. We have other people staggering down from Tan Hill that just want to go home because it hasn't stopped raining for three days and their feet are covered in blisters. But it's a very, very mixed bag. It really is. Like I say, dependent on the weather.
1: It's probably time for us to turn tail at this moment. I look up on the bank above me and I can see a a Swordell Yew. Is it or is it? Yow. Yow, a Swardell yow, looking down very imperiously on me and uh, it's saying, what the heck are they doing? (laughs)
2: Probably sits there watching all these people going, What on earth are they doing? Just walking for no reason. (laughs)
5: Well,
1: we've crossed over Ramsholm Bridge, we're back onto the paved way again, and probably a good moment to reflect back on. What society is like in this vicinity now, and the changes that you might see ahead of you here?
2: I think, um, particularly over what the the world has gone through in the past year and a half, um, domestic tourism is only going to, you know, further develop and become more popular. Um, Swaledale, along with the rest of the Yorkshire Dales, was Popular anyway, so I guess you know it's going to be a boom time for um, all local businesses and the farmers that provide the campsites and um, the, the hospitality. And so long, long may it continue because it does provide valuable
1: local income. It's like and after to the Second World War, when that boom occurred, when people escaped from mill towns. At which point, listeners, <laughs> this, this, this is one for you, listeners. Quick fires. And uh, Helen, you're in the firing line. Oh, no. <laughs> what was your first Dale's memory? My first Dale's memory was
2: going up to Keld and running into my nana's house and heading straight for the second top right drawer of the dresser because that's where the sweets were kept. Toffees or peppermints? Mint Imperials. Very good. Have your favourite Dale's fell? Not so much a fell, but I think my favourite place in Swaledale is the Oxnut Pass, going up Obercrow trees, going from Swaledale into Wensleydale because that, that's where three generations of my father's family farmed.
1: It's wonderful, that lovely sense of connection. Uh, if you were cast away on a desert island, what Dale's book would you take with you? Oh
2: my goodness, I think it would have to be Swaledale by Ella Pontefract. Ella Pontefract and Mary Hartley um, came from um, the West Riding, fell in love with the Dales and bought a cottage in Askrig and began years of research talking to local people and recording all the old farming methods, all the traditions in a series of wonderful, wonderful books.
1: Red squirrel or swaddle sheep? Swaddle
2: sheep. Has to be.
1: Magic.
2: Have you a favourite Dales view? I do. And that is from Crackpot Hall, looking down Kinsden Gorge towards Muca. It has been said to be the best view in Yorkshire, but I could be biased.
1: Have you a Dale's heroine
2: or hero, dead or alive? Oh, goodness me. That is a really, really difficult question. But I think, you know... Richard or Cherry Keaton would have to be up there. Richard and Cherry Keaton were born at Thwaite, which is a small hamlet about half a mile from Keld, and they became wildlife pioneers. They were the first to actually take photographs of birds on the nest. Until they did it, it was deemed to be impossible. And they did it through ingenious um, methods of designing hides. And they had a great degree of tenacity and patience where they would build these natural hides and sit in them for hours, days, to capture the perfect photograph. And Cherry Keaton went all around the world on safaris, wrote books, made films. Richard Keaton, he had an accident as a child, so he stayed very much more within the United Kingdom. But they were wildlife pioneers, and Sir David Attenborough actually wrote my sister and I a letter to say it was because of Cherry Keaton's um, Dasson Island penguin film from the 1930s that inspired him to go into the natural world as a career.
1: Um, Have you a favourite town or village in Swaledale? I do. Keld. And what does the word Keld mean? It means spring. If you were the Prime Minister for the day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of the Yorkshire Dales? I would introduce it into the school curriculum.
2: So all children are taught about how important the countryside is. So then regardless of what vocation or career they went into, it would be at the heart of their decision-making.
1: I accord with that one as well. That's marvellous. It's cross-curricular, and it's life around you. When the time comes and a few friends gather at a place very special to you, where might that be? Crackpot Hall. Right. I want my ashes scattered from Crackpot Hall. Both my
2: parents came from Upper Swaledale, um, but I think I have to be honest and say that if I hadn't have moved away for nearly 30 years would I have the same appreciation for it? Because obviously when you grow up here, it is quite isolated. There are very limited things to do. And sadly, for a, for a lot of the younger people, they do have to go away to have a viable career. Um, but having been away, I had that contrast and realised what an absolutely beautiful and unique place it was to grow up, but also that my ancestors have come from. And that's something that I am very, very proud of.
0: journey's end the skies overcast now threatening rain i think mark but still a little bit of sunshine on the valley sides and still the immense vibrancy of these wildflower meadows what a joyful walk that was fabulous
1: i look behind me and i can look up towards crackpot hall there's billowing clouds there to the west our conversation has been a delight i've learned lots and lots about the valley Mm-hmm. and it's a valley I've always had this bias towards Wensdale because that's where all my family roots were mm. but for a treat Swelldale was always somewhere special to come come over Buttertubs. that was always in my mind get to Thwaite uh, and go down to the tea room either in Thwaite or the Curtain tea room or down to wreath, and then hop back over Askrigg Moor
0: so I had that memory from many years back right it has this timeless loveliness to my mind Um, And I think Helen captured a lot of that, didn't she? Mm. Oh, she's been steeped in it. It's worth mentioning her heritage centre. She mentioned it very briefly early on. Uh, It's in Keld. It's a wonderful collection of local history, heritage, people's stories. Um, And it's a, a fantastic community hub, really, telling the story of this valley to the many, many visitors who come here, particularly those on foot Um, They've done great work up there. There's also a little community orchard.
1: Absolutely. It's lovely
0: how they're looking after the landscape. So a fabulous walk up Upper Swaledale. One of my favourite walks in the country, actually, Mark. So many interesting routes into this one valley. Our usual housekeeping. This is episode number 58 For all 57 previous episodes, please do go to www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media at Countrystride1, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, And the final thing to say is if you would like to support us, you can buy our publications, the Oldswater Way Official Guide and the Threlkeld Walking Companion, again at www.countrystride.co.uk. Next up, Mark, we're not quite sure.
1: Not sure. Typically, we have a long list, a medium list, a, li- a now list, yes. but we haven't homed in on what the next is. <laughs> this
0: that's, is really funny. That's the one where we phone up somebody the day before and go, why are you free tomorrow? <laughs> yeah,
1: that, this time of year, people tend to be on holiday or something, and it is quite a difficult time to fill, funnily enough.
0: Whatever it will be, it will be, hopefully, as uh, rewarding as this wonderful walk and talk and... Um, For now, from our very brief sojourn over the county lines, we're saying goodbye. And thank you, Yorkshire, for welcoming us.